Welcome to the Breakout Growth Podcast, where Sean Ellis interviews leaders from the world's fastest growing companies to get to the heart of what's really driving their growth. And now, here's your host, Sean Ellis. All right. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at 3D Hubs, which is a fast-growing B2B platform that simplifies on-demand manufacturing. 3D Hubs was founded in Amsterdam in 2013 and has raised $30 million in venture capital to support its rapid expansion. I'm really interested to dig in and see what they are doing to drive all of this growth. I'm interviewing Ferdinand Goetzen, who's their director of marketing and growth, and he previously led growth at Recruity, one of the fastest growing B2B SaaS companies in Europe. So let's get started. Hey, Ferdinand, welcome to the Breakout Growth Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So uh, super excited to have you on. I think it's a, it's a really good transition episode because I'm, I'm going into kind of hardware next and uh, the fact that you are have kind of B2B hardware. So I'll let you explain that in, in right now, in fact. So why, do, why don't you tell us a bit about what 3D Hubs is and what problem it solves? Yes. Um, well, 3D Hubs is an online manufacturing platform. So we offer an AI-driven platform that gives engineers access to a virtually unlimited manufacturing supply. Uh, if, you, if you work in hardware and you're an engineer building hardware products, uh, one of the biggest challenges is get, getting those products actually made because you design them for functionality and then you actually have to make sure that those actually get manufactured. So we offer this online platform that allows uh, engineers to, to manufacture their parts more quickly, more easily, and uh, it's, uh, it's highly automated, it's faster, it's more transparent, it's easier to use than a lot of the traditional solutions on the market. So we're really trying to disrupt, disrupt this industry. And does it tend to be um, more, more sort of locally sourced or is, is it not really matter for a lot of these companies if it's, if it's local or, or across the world? Yeah, so we have a global network of manufacturing partners, over 250 of them, offering all sorts of different technologies, including 3D printing, CNC machining, injection molding, sheet metal fabrication. So all the different technologies you would use to uh, manufacture different parts and products and prototypes. And uh, they're based everywhere in the world. So on the one hand, we can often try to manufacture things as closely as possible to the customer, which, of course, is a very sustainable uh, solution. But we also offer companies the chance to, to unlock uh, manufacturing countries all over the world. Because if you're a smaller company, and we serve companies of all sizes, but if you're a smaller company or an SMB, you probably don't have the network and the connections to big manufacturing powerhouses like China or India. And we essentially give that access to mm -hmm. companies like that. So they can get some of the cost advantages potentially of, of, a, of a lower cost manufacturing hub, but if they maybe need something fast, then, then you give access to something local. Yeah, it's always fast, to be honest. I think uh, it's, uh, it's really more a sustainability question in a lot of cases. And okay. we, we do offer that access and uh, often also cheaper simply because we have this network of partners. And that, of course, allows us to get the most competitive price out of the system. And then how do you guys make money? Uh, just a standard platform model. So uh, we get a cut from, uh, from various orders. Okay. Okay, cool. And then, um, so you've been there about six months, it looks like. Um, what, what drew you to the opportunity and, and you know, what made you feel like you could be successful there? 
Well, on a really simple level, what drew me to the opportunity is that I am wholeheartedly convinced that this company is going to be a unicorn in the not too far future. Um, so that was one of the big selling points. It's a, it's, it's a really a revolutionary product. We take usually if, if you've designed a part or a product or even just a prototype, the time it takes to find the supplier, talk to them, get a quote, there's a lot of back and forth. There can be a lot of bureaucracy. Things don't always work out. We've essentially automated that entire process because we have an AI algorithm that'll predict the price for you instantly. So something that could usually take up to two weeks suddenly takes five seconds. And that's for more than 98% of our parts. So I really think the product is revolutionary. It's a funded company. We've raised $30 million in funding. And it just to me seemed, this company seemed like the perfect opportunity to, uh, to really take things to the next level and work with what I think is a really groundbreaking product, not to mention working in what is the biggest industry in the world. The manufacturing industry is $12, $13 trillion. So that's a very, very big industry with huge potential. And at the same time, it's very traditional. So there's a lot of things to disrupt. I did a little bit of kind of digging into it, and, and it looks like it looks like the business model may have changed a bit in in uh, maybe maybe in the last year, where it where it seems like you've really just kind of dialed into something maybe over the last year. Can you can you touch on that at all? Any changes that have happened? Like how long has the company been around? Yeah, the company's been around since 2013. It started off actually as a peer to peer marketplace. So. It was very much like your traditional, or maybe not traditional, but your classic modern online marketplaces. Think uh, Airbnb, for example, where people with 3D printers would basically be connected with people with making makery 3D printing needs. And then around two years ago, we started pivoting towards a B2B model where we started adding new manufacturing technologies and really focusing on the bigger picture within the industry. And that's what we've been doing the last two years. And that's also one of the things that makes my job really exciting, that this used to be a B2C company, now it's a B2B company. Um, and a big part of my job is, is really helping gear the marketing and growth strategy towards this B2B focus. Mm-hmm. So, and that is that part of what, what brought you in? Because it seems like your background is more B2B. Yeah, absolutely. So my background is uh, quite, quite heavily B2B. I did work in B2C back in the day, but it's also because, because of this pivot, there was this opportunity, there was this kind of green pasture to build a marketing team up, not from scratch, but virtually from scratch. And that was just too exciting an opportunity to pass up. Yeah. So, okay. So what's the first thing that you did when you got there? Like that you prioritize, we, we got to do this before we could do anything else. Well, the very first thing, one thing that makes 3D hubs in this industry very different from most of the people that I know working in growth is that we have a very, very specific target audience. So when I was working at Recruity previously, our target audience were recruiters. Um, which has certain challenges, but very different than having a target audience of engineers who are very technical, uh, no BS attitude, not necessarily the wordiest people in the, wor- in the world. So the very first thing I had to do is really wrap my head around the industry, understand how do these people think? How do these people work? How does the product actually impact them? Because what you'll find is a lot of classic marketing tactics and you know traditional copywriting tactics and tricks they just don't work because this is such a niche audience so the very first thing that i tried to do is get to know the industry then i focused on building the team because i was essentially brought in to build this team up and then the first things we did after that were set up our experimental process for for data-driven experimentation and iterations and then focus on our european expansion strategy into germany and france mm-hmm. 
So how, how was the tooling when you got there? Was it, was it pretty good in terms of analytics and, and testing infrastructure? Yeah, we had, we had a quite, quite a good setup uh, all around. We definitely had some of that B2C legacy that had to be disentangled and is being worked on. But luckily, we have a data team as well in-house, and we are now working at quite a high level, and we're constantly iterating and maturing our, our tooling and always adding new tools to it. But I, I was actually quite positively surprised by how good our setup was when I joined yeah, that's great. I've I've definitely come into situations where that's the first thing. It's like, like oh, I don't even know what the hell's going on. We gotta 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 get some good measurement systems in place and and I mean it sounds like you did a lot of that figuring out, but it was more kind of qualitative customer, understand the industry, and that you maybe had some data already in terms of what people were doing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, and then you mentioned that you were at Recruity before. I know, I, I kind of know that space. I actually was an investor in a company called Connectifier. And um, I know that Recruity has been one of the fastest growing uh, companies, uh, one of the fastest growing B2B SaaS businesses in, in Europe. So um, congrats on the success there. What, what do you feel like is the biggest difference uh, in, in how you need to approach growth here at 3D Hubs versus what you were doing at Recruity? Yeah, I mean, I joined Recruity when we were... I don't know, 12, 13 people was very, very much in the early days. And looking back, being more immersed into the world of funded companies and uh, VC-backed companies, it's actually quite remarkable what, what we managed to do, what they still managed to do today. Because as an unfunded company, they, they, to me, I, I still would describe Recruity as the only real bootstrap SaaS company possibly, possibly uh, in the Western world. Um, of course, that's, a, that's an exaggeration. But I think uh, there, there are some really substantial differences. The first major difference is in the business model. Uh, Recruity is really classic SaaS. So all the templates, everything that you look at, you know, the classic funnel, all these things were just really templatable, really easy to apply, reporting data structures. Everything was focused on retention, achieving negative churn. That was our, that was back then our holy grail metric was having negative churn and um, something that we actually sustained quite long. Whereas at 3D Hubs, we're, we're we're a marketplace model, of course. So we're really much more looking towards returns and repeat orders. So there's a bit of checkout element in there. So that's the first big difference. The second big difference is that the target audience is just much more technical at uh, 3D Hubs. So the, the amount of uh, knowledge that you need to acquire in order to understand the user is just a lot, a lot, a lot greater. And then also the complexity of the product, because Recruity is just a, a, a software as a service. Whereas at 3D Hubs, we're sort of selling two things. We're selling an online platform which is driven by AI and has a lot of uh, particularities and complexities within it. But we're also selling manufacturing services via that platform. So you're selling two things at once. And we have a huge amount of customers coming in every month. Uh, we're a funded company. We have these big unicorn global ambitions. So there are definitely some substantial differences from a marketing perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes uh makes sense that they're that when you really start to look at the two different businesses that even though they're both b2b sounds sounds pretty different so what what about when you you mentioned that earlier in your career you were in b2c um how would you kind of more broadly characterize the the differences in in b2b growth versus b2c growth yeah so most of my b2c experience was in uh agency and consultancy and training models so um my main takeaway is that I think B2B is a lot harder in a lot of ways from a marketing perspective. I think from a from business growth perspective, when you're thinking about the business model and the revenue potential, B2C has 
a lot more channel, uh, challenges as you as you uh, go further down the line. But from a marketing perspective, I think B2B is very challenging because, first of all, you have fewer channels. You have a very specific target audience that you need to tap into, that you really need to understand and decode. There are not a thousand channels or hundred channels that you can use. Um, knowing your audience is often even more crucial. And you have issues that are very particular to B2B companies. For example, the decision maker and the user will be different people. You have that in some B2C situations, but it's... it's, it's uh, it's less strong than when you look at B2B, where the person who's testing the tool and the person who's going to be using the tool and the person who's going to make the final decision on the tool and the person who's going to actually approve the purchasing of the tool could be four completely different people where you have to understand what are their needs, how are they making decisions, what drives them, and how do you convince them? So really, and it's a, that's just the tip of the iceberg. If you go into things like CRO, for example, in most B2B companies, you won't have that same kind of volume that you can just test everything and anything. So conversion rate optimization is a different ballpark, and it's really much more a value game than a volume game. That's great. No, you definitely touched on on a lot of the things that I found as I've as I've gone back and forth between B2B and B2C. It's a, it, it definitely seems to be a different beast, and it's part of the reason why I'm grouping together a lot of different B2B companies trying to trying to really put together a playbook more around what uh, B2B growth looks like. But beyond that high level B2B, why don't we kind of zoom back in on 3D hubs and and talk about the success that you've had to date and um, I think probably especially now that you've been there, the, the time that you have, what you feel like are, are really the keys to, to driving that success at least so far? Oof. Um, there are a few. I would say, first of all, just having an awesome product just makes such a big difference. If you have a great product and if you're doing something really cutting edge in a traditional industry, that, that becomes such a driver behind not just your commercial decisions and your strategic decisions, but also your branding decisions. I think that's a major thing. Uh, another thing is having a really great team. Um, I've had the huge privilege that I've been given the trust to build a team. We've hired over 10, 11, even 12 people in the last six months and really built a, an extensive uh, marketing team with really, really amazing people. That makes, that makes it, that makes a huge difference. And I think looking forward, we really hope to invest more into really distinguishing our brand because when you're in such a traditional industry and you come in with very strong branding, it can make such a big difference in a lot of the, the way that uh, the product and the company is perceived within the market. And then you also mentioned earlier that it's just it's a it's a huge industry that's that's ripe for disruption. So how how much of that you you just you started with that's an awesome product, but how much do you feel like the market is just in the right place where an awesome product could do really well? Yeah, it's such a huge industry that it's very hard to say this is the right time and place. But what we're seeing now is that. A lot of countries, if you take a country like Germany, for example, Germany is in the top five countries in the world in terms of manufacturing output. But when you look at uh, digitization of manufacturing, they're 17th. And you can see that we've seen digital really taking over a whole range of different industries. And now I really think that such a, a traditional industry like manufacturing is rife for it because we have Industry 4.0, the rise of IoT, um, hardware companies are becoming more automated, more technical, more digitally savvy, more digitized as a whole. Uh, AI is disrupting entire sectors within this industry. I think this is this is in many ways the right time to, to come in and 
and, and present what is a much more sustainable solution because it's not the most transparent industry in the world, traditionally speaking. You, if you're talking to one factory somewhere halfway across the world, you don't know if you're getting a fair price. You don't know how long the communications are going to take. You, you don't necessarily have the network or the contacts to be able to manage those properly. You might not have the supply chain team to do that. And if you can automate big chunks of that, and we do long-term see that the future of manufacturing is going to be this distributed, digitally driven model. And we want to be the company that brings around that change. I mean, I assume if the if the opportunity is as big as you say it is, and that there's so many problems to be solved, that that probably there's a lot of other companies that are pursuing this opportunity as well. You don't have to name them, but I'm just curious if if you feel like it's a, it's pretty competitive. There are. I mean, it's it is it is quite competitive because you're 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 not just competing. This is this is where it comes back to we're selling two things. You're selling the platform, and then you're also selling the services that are available through the platform. And if you're only talking about the services, you're competing very very strongly with very traditional companies, things like mom and pop shops around the corner. And it's, you know, if somebody has a, a local manufacturing shop that's our CNC shop, a lo- local manufacturing partner that they work with, and, you know, they see each other on weekends or they go over for meetings, it's very hard to compete with that if you have this scalable digital model, of course. But if you're talking about just platforms in themselves, there are a lot of players in the market. But I think when it comes to that niche, I think we're by far the most innovative, the most disruptive. And that's really something that we want to keep pushing. So, it's, so it is pretty differentiated then in terms of, in, in terms of how you're approaching it. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's, I always say that you know, Uber can see, if you, if you take a company like Uber, their competitors might be Lyft, but it's also taxis, but it's also riding your bike in Amsterdam, for example. I live in Amsterdam, so uh, I always have the option, do I take an Uber or do I cycle to where I'm going because I can cycle back again? So suddenly companies like Swap Bike and Uber actually can, they're competing for the same same audience for the same solving the same problem, and it's very similar in manufacturing. That there might be ten completely different types of companies all vying for the same for the same audience to solve the same pain. Really, before these types of services emerged, what, how did people how did people or these these companies source manufacturing partners? Yeah, there's a few options. Either you had, like I said, these mom and pop shops, which are really your local smaller uh, suppliers. Or you were working, if you're a big company, I don't know, really big companies, they manufacture things with huge factories like Foxconn and these big, big, big factories. Okay, so like the, the contract manufacturing. Exactly. Really huge, uh-huh. huge manufacturing uh, facilities. Or they had in-house capabilities, which of course is not incredibly scalable. So we really, we see that a lot of these traditional solutions are either already too limiting or are, are at risk of being too limiting in the future. Not to mention that there are a lot of companies that simply cannot get the benefits because they, 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 they just cannot, they're not big enough to be able to work with these huge partners. And that's really what we do. We, we help uh, medium-sized players compete with the biggest giants of the industry. Mm-hmm. So leveling the playing field a bit between them. Absolutely. So, and then I, I assume, I mean, again, it's, it's six months since you've been there, but I assume you've, you've come across some uh, growth challenges in those six months. So is there anything that, that comes to mind as a big challenge that you've hit and, and what have you done to overcome it so far? Yeah, the big challenge, of course, again, is that you have such a technical niche audience. Uh, I always say whenever I'm hiring people, I'm talking to people, I say, if you can figure out things like customer development, user experience, uh, design, user experience, research, if you can figure out this audience, 
you can go to any company in the world and figure out that audience. I don't, I don't think there are many more complicated or more difficult audiences to figure out if you are not from that world. I'm not an engineer, and most people on my team aren't engineers. Although in the rest of the company, there is a very, there's a high, you know, dominance of engineering backgrounds, and I think, I think that's the fundamental challenge. And then there are really things unique to us. For example, really shifting everything over to this kind of B2B mindset um, and always balancing. And I think it's maybe one of the other things is that you might be the most innovative, cutting edge company following all the modern processes, really taking you know growth hacking to the next level and experimenting, being data-driven. You could be the most modern player in the industry. But that doesn't change the fact that your audience might not be. And a lot of our most potential valuable leads and customers and, 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 our, and our audience as a whole is in, in many countries and in many sectors quite traditional. So we find ourselves using the latest experimental processes. And some of the experiments that come up are things like, let's try and send a flyer in the mail to the head of engineering at this company. <laughs> and I think that's maybe something right. that's happened a lot is that with kind of the advent of you know the lean approach to marketing and kind of modern marketing, a lot of people forget that just because you're cutting edge doesn't mean that your audience is, and you still have to do what works for your industry. So you can apply a lot of these modern process, processes to the most traditional marketing methods that might still work. And balancing that has been a big challenge as well. So I, I want to come back to the first one that you that you mentioned. Um, so getting to know this this technical niche audience uh, and and trying to figure them out. So has it have did you do that mostly through? interviewing customers, surveying customers, um, studying the industry, talking to experts, all of the above, uh, one more than the others? Well, I would say that. So honestly, I now know a thousand times more than I did six months ago. And I still think I'm just scraping uh, the, the, you know, the, the tip of the iceberg still. I think there's still so much to discover. Um, but what we do is, yes, exactly. We First of all, we talk to everyone in the company. We try to talk to customers. We go to events. We try to talk to the people and we really try to get the full picture. This is, again, something that I think a lot of companies should be doing is we don't just talk to the people who've chosen us because I think everyone talks about talking to customers. I think it's really important, but I think sometimes it's more important to talk to the people who didn't choose you, the people who considered you and said, ah, nah, I'm not going to go with that. Because those are the people who hold the secret. Because the people you've already, the people who already use you and use your product, you've already convinced them. So you, you must be doing something right. But if you can tap into those people who have actively decided against your solution, that's when that's where you learn a lot. So we really try to go to events and immerse ourselves in the industry as much as possible, read the content, talk to people, and and, and through that just get a better understanding. Because one of the things that I found is most companies, even those that are really good at growth, their marketing still sounds like marketing. And that's something that everyone, every marketer, uh, is a trap every marketer falls into at one point or another. Um, and and it's happened to me plenty of times. But mm -hmm. in our industry, you can't get away with that. Whereas right. in some others, you might. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned events because I, I, I think back to my first B2B opportunity is logged me in way back in the early days when we had kind of shifted from pure B2C to more B2B. And one of the very first industry events I went to was in London. And I just through the conversations that I had over those three days, I did more kind of customer development to where I started to get so many epiphanies in terms of how do we, how do we get these guys? What, who are the right target people? And and so I think that's one of the big advantages of, of B2B is that you do have these kind of industry events where you can 
have a ton of conversations and really it's, it's less about selling your product and more about really getting to understand your audience and, and how you can better serve that audience. Absolutely. hundred percent. So how, let's, let's kind of look more now in terms of how, how you guys are organized for growth. And uh, I mean, you, for, for one thing, you've, you've talked about that you've, you've added quite a few people to the team, but even, even just you directly as director of marketing and growth, what, what is the scope of your responsibility in that role? Yeah, we have, um, so I essentially oversee uh, the whole marketing and growth department, which means that we try to boost metrics across the entire customer journey from start to finish. So we do everything from demand generation to branding, to PR, to lead acquisition, to product marketing, product growth, uh, improving the user experience in certain parts. Uh, we work very closely with our checkout team and, and the product teams and the various other, other departments in the company to, uh, to try to maximize um, metrics across the funnel. And um, it's really, we, we, split it, we split it into three different teams because there are, if you take, if you take your traditional growth funnel, you know, kind of awareness, acquisition, activation, uh, you know, revenue, retention, referrals, as it is in our case, if, uh, if you take that entire scope, we have three teams dedicated to each section of the funnel. So at the top, we have a demand generation team, which is all about branding, PR, content marketing, inbound, really driving the awareness. So, you know, pouring water into the bucket. And then we have, in the middle, we have our lead acquisition team, which is mainly uh, uh, staffed by growth marketers. What they do is everything that's uh, a little bit of awareness, but primarily acquisition and activation. So we focus really on how do we maximize user activation? How do we maximize conversion? How do we, how do, we do the most automated, most segmented form of nurturing? And everything that's channel marketing falls into that team. And then we have the product marketing and growth team, which is really deeper in the funnel, which is everything that's max, increasing stickiness, making sure that there are that if we have one company using us, that we have as many engineers as possible in that company using us. Um, things like retention, returns, and everything as product communications, product positioning, that falls into that third team. So we really try to cover the whole mm -hmm. funnel with these three teams. Mm -hmm. That's cool. And and um, has that has that changed a lot since you since you've been there? I mean, did you like what what did it look like when you got there? This has all been built in the last six months. When I, when, I, when I joined, we had, we had three people in marketing. We had a content marketing manager, product marketing manager, and, um, and somebody who was more on the community, social media events side of things. And now we've actually built this into full-fledged teams, including designers, developers, um, growth marketers with different focus, with kind of different focuses and, uh, and uh, different strengths. And uh, we've, we've built this really all-encompassing team that can really cover all parts of the customer journey. Wow. So you actually have dedicated developers on your team? Yeah, we have two full-stack, full-time developers. Oh, that's fantastic. And then um, as far as the sales model itself, is it, uh, how much is it like kind of outbound, outbound, just, just calling on clients versus that sort of inbound, inbound kind of, I mean, you've sort of explained it. It sounds more inbound where, where the content and everything's bringing people there. And then you're trying to find the right prospects and nurture those prospects. Is that, is that, would you say it's, it's less kind of enterprisey and more, more that, or are you also doing some enterprise stuff? It's both. Uh, we're actually doing both in parallel. So we definitely have this more inbound funnel, 
which is something that we've only recently built up. And we, we do have to tap into, given our industry, we do have to tap into the, the high intent channels. So something like SEO and SEA is going to be way, uh, how do I say, way more important in terms of generating opportunities and really high value leads than earlier in the funnel. But early in the funnel, the, the demand generation team is really about building demand because here's the thing is that you have this huge industry, this huge audience, but from that audience, you know, 90% of them have the pain 80% of them are aware of the pain, 70% are aware of the pain and willing to take action on it, 40% of them have all of those and are open to a solution like ours. So educating the market and penetrating the market is so important. That's really what the demand generation team does. And then the lead acquisition team brings in high value leads, nurtures them, and then the product marketing team maximizes their value once they turn into customers. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really, yeah, like as, as you said, the, the, the high intent, Harvest the heck out of that demand as much as possible, but um, but if th- that's always going to be a pretty finite market, and then the really big end of the market, especially if everything's going through transition, is going to be how do you, how do you get all those people who are really not looking for a solution but need one to to be more open to it? And so it sounds like you're you're covering all of that, which is great. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And there is also a whole outbound process as well. So we we definitely cover. We try to cover both of these things. Great. How do you interact with other teams? Is it uh, do do you spend much time like interacting with the product team, for example, um, or or is it pretty separated? Yeah, I mean, when I joined, this is the thing that you you can model any kind of team setup that you like, and it might look really great on paper. But then when you join a company that's not five people, you're going to have to adapt whatever you're doing to how the company is already set up. So we don't have a SaaS product. So when it comes to optimizations within the product it's really much more kind of optimizing the checkout flow and that's something that rests within product because because we are very good data driven and uh, and conversion driven people within the product team so we align closely with them if we have certain findings and certain ideas and certain feedback we relay those over there and we work really closely with sales as well i i think in the future a lot of these departments are slowly going to uh, dissolve and merge in various different ways and so we work very closely with sales we're quite closely with customer success and then everything that's design branding and product as well we work really closely okay with. so there's a separate customer success team as well yes there okay is. yes because it's it's we we need to fulfill orders right so it's a very very different skill set so this, this is just a, it's a really good it's a really a, 3D Hub is a really interesting case because it's such a different business model that how you apply what you read in the books to how it is in reality, uh, this is the company where it's differed the most. But at the same time, I've also had so much kind of support and the resources to actually build what I wanted to, what, what, I, what I'm hoping or what I'm looking to build. So, so we have a nice balance. There. Right. Well, I definitely feel like, uh, there is no what works for most. <laughs> the more conversations I have, the more I realize that um, you know every every company is pretty unique, and and how you how you build a team and how you execute around an opportunity does seem to be does seem to be pretty different. Some are more different than others, and it sounds like you guys are in that camp. Um, yeah, absolutely. And then, so do you feel like cross functional alignment's pretty good there? I mean, as as it's grown, sometimes things tend to become more siloed. Sounds like you're interacting pretty well with some of those other teams, but um, is it something that you guys really make a concerted effort to do? And if so, what, what specifically are you doing to, to increase the, the uh, alignment between, between teams? 
Yeah, I think having teams aligned is incredibly important and having cross-functional teams within the departments is also very important. So you want to cover a, whole, a large range of skills within your own team and you want to be working very closely with other teams. Because if you have a very data-driven team interacting with a with a not-at-all data-driven team, that doesn't really work. Data-drivenness is something that should, be, should transcend the entire company. Um, and uh, so working t- together closely is crucial. And we really go out of our ways to, to set up. We, we make certain decisions only with other stakeholders and other teams. Uh, what, we do, what we do in our department, what we've done recently, is we sit with st- stakeholders from every team. And we really just sit down with them and say, what are we doing that we could be doing differently? And what aren't we doing that we should be doing? And we really then try to get other people's um, imp- input on how to do marketing better. And I think that's, and even if they have nothing to do with marketing, even if they're in a completely different department, we try to understand how can we, what do you think we should be doing? Because if you go, we have a company of 130, 140 people, 36 different nationalities. So it's a very diverse, very mixed company. There are so many perspectives and that's just a treasure trove that, 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 that you need to take advantage of. Do you guys have kind of a, a shared metric between teams, like a North Star metric, or or does everyone have their own KPIs they're focused on? Yeah, we work with OKRs, so we have OKRs that we have on, on on for the whole company, and then per team, and we set that per year and per quarter. So we work with uh, the OKR model, and that's essentially what drives us. So we don't have a North Star metric per se, but uh, we do have key targets within each team and then within the marketing department we really try to push new customer revenue and opportunities for example so it's a big metric that we that we chase okay but then like long long term long term success would probably just be gauged then in in revenue growth or how how would you kind of gauge long term success yeah well we set we set a number of okrs for the year and one of those is revenue, but there are also other ones and that differs from year to year, depending on the challenges that we think we face. So we have okay. this really, it all falls under the vision, you know, this mm-hmm. vision of becoming this, uh, this leader in automated distributed manufacturing. Yeah. Before we kind of jump in and, and look at really that path, we're, we're coming up on the end here, but I, uh, there's so many questions I want to ask you because you, you really, um, I think have a super interesting perspective on this stuff, but, um, what uh, sort of what's your process for figuring out ways to improve your growth to accelerate growth? So um, just whether it's discovering whole new growth levers or optimizing growth levers, we have what, what's the process that you follow there? Yeah, I think the the key here is that we built these three teams, and these three teams eventually will have the you know the same amount of people the same sort of weight but that is not necessarily currently the case but the idea with building these three teams so this kind of demand generation lead acquisition and product growth is the key there is to really show how important the focus of each part of the funnel is and each of these teams then has targets and a strategy and there are the things that already work which we uh which we, we tend to build playbooks. So we know that if we go into a new country, we have to do X, Y, Z in order to conquer that country. And the, so we work off the basis of these playbooks. We work on the basis of constant iteration optimization. And then for discovering new things, we have an experimental process. So we work in biweekly growth sprints where we outline our experiments, create the hypothesis really almost like on pa- as on paper. And at the moment we do this with the entire department because just because you're working on product growth doesn't mean you can't have input into demand generation. So we do this with the whole team and we have usually ten, uh, five, five, six strategic people who are always in the meeting and then three to five people who are welcome to join. 
and anyone from any other department is welcome to join if they want. And we then just list up our experiments, prioritize, and then we assign and execute them. Mm-hmm. So let's let's kind of now look at the customer. You said that was one of the first things that you did when you got there. Um, you you really tried to understand what the you know who who the customers were. It's a more technical customer and what their needs are and how how you satisfy those needs. So let's let's kind of look at the path that a new customer takes from first discovering 3D hubs to eventually becoming a raving fan of it. Um, I think you've, you've covered quite a bit on acquisition and how, how you acquire customers. The, the one thing that I want to dig a little bit more into is um, the, this concept that you also touched on of, is the buyer the same thing as the user, the same thing as the one who approves the purchase? What, what, is, what is that kind of, what do the touch points look like in, in a decision to, to buy and, and to keep uh, becoming a customer or keep staying a customer? Yeah, again, it boils down to we, we, we try to we try to sell the platform, and then via the platform, we can then sell these various services. We 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 generally try to target the end user, who is the engineer. The idea being that the engineer might not always be the final decision maker, and there might be other players who can block these decisions. And we do take them into account. We build content, one pagers, all kinds of stuff to help convince those potential blockers and those potential other decision makers. But we really think that ultimately the person is going to be using the service, is going to be using the platform. That is really the person to convince. So we gear everything. We know what our activation moment is, the wow moment, the aha moment, however, however it's called these days. Well, we, we know that uh, we uh, we know that the, the the key kind of wow factor when you use our platform is that you know as an engineer how long it can take to get a quote, and then here you land on our website, you upload your CAD file, you upload your design, and then within seconds you have a quote. And that code is guaranteed. So that, that code, you can lock it in and submit it. So, so, so that's how accurate it is because we, we've made over 4 million parts and we can use that data to predict how much the price is going to be on a completely new part we've never seen. So we know that when somebody uploads a part and gets an instant quote, they can then click between the technologies, they can then click between the materials, and they can see how that affects their price. They can click between the lead times. So you have full control over the price you're going to pay. So we know that that's the activation moment. And that's why we also try to make the barrier to that as low as possible. So that's when, when I say that the lead acquisition team works on activation, it's really about making sure that people get to that, get to that instant quote as quickly and effectively as possible. Because that's, that's really ultimately what, what, what moves the needle for us. We know that if somebody's taken that action, that's, uh, that's it. So that's why we also gear a lot towards the, the, the key influencer within this process, which is the engineer who will be using the service. Mm-hmm. And then we try to... Okay, so the engineer tends to discover and, and uses... Yes, the, the engineer tends to discover and uses and then and, and uses the platform. And then we try to equip that person with the various tools and content mm-hmm. needed to convince other players. The other exactly. decision. Of course, it changes depending yeah. on the size of the company, but that's essentially how we look at it, broadly speaking. That's awesome. And I, I think it's great that you've identified that wow moment because I think, you know, it, and it sounds like a, a, a very uh, clear wow moment. So that's something that the growth and marketing team can really work hard to get people to that point. But you also mentioned that you do have a customer success team. Do they play any role in getting people to that point or, or do they come in only after the deal's closed? Yeah, it depends. I mean, we're a company that's uh, growing really fast. So a lot of our processes are in constant in a constant state of flux. And uh, so that has differed over time. Generally, ideally, customer success will, will deal with customers. 
simply because of resources and volume. That that's ideal. But of course, there are situations where a deal isn't closed, and the customer success team will get involved. And especially when we do events, we 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 have a very localized strategy to to marketing. So if we are doing an event in France, we'll make sure that there are sales, customer success, marketing, that everyone who can speak French is there to serve the French market, learn from the French market, understand the French market. So there is a little bit of a cross pollination there. If if you identify a lead and they haven't gotten to that wow moment yet, that would and and you're doing everything you can on the marketing and growth side to to kind of automate the process of them getting there. But if there's going to be some some handholding and touching that happens, that would be more with a sales team rather than with a customer success team. Yes. Well, yeah, it depends. If they're a customer, then it could be both. But customer success is really more for you know if. The sales team will really try to get them to the wow moment. The customer success team is more about more about solving the troubles, the issues that the that that the customer faces, especially with the orders and such. So we 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 try to balance. Our job is to get them to the wow moment. In fact, we've geared our entire lead flow to say that you you, you only qualify for certain actions if you've had the wow moment. That's almost you have to do that to become a customer. Mm-hmm. So so food for thought. Just. Uh, it- from my earlier B2B experiences, I, I've, I've done a lot of conversations in B2B recently and, and with all the reading that I've done, I actually, am, am, if I were to go back and redo it, I set it up exactly the same way that you have said, but if I were to go back and do it, I think I would reverse it to where, to where a salesperson is so money driven rather than experience driven that it's just hard for the end user to maybe be trusting of a salesperson as much and having customer success being, uh, you know, trying to engage with people who haven't gotten to the experience yet that leads to conversion and long-term retention. I think um, like what I did was I actually had salespeople that I just put the name customer success on, but I think literally having them just having their key metric being get people to that experience. um, I I think it's something worth worth considering because it it feels like... um, it feels like that's that's where things are moving toward. That uh, decisions to purchase are based on that type of wow experience, and you've got such a clear one that having someone who's not money driven but just driving to get people to that experience could be really helpful. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really interesting. I guess I guess in our case, what's what's different is that because you're selling the platform and you're selling the the, the technologies, that they're not really in contact with sales either until they've actually been on the platform. So uh, in, in that respect, uh, also most of our salespeople are engineers, which is, uh, which is uh, also a nice pecu- uh, particular pe- kind of peculiarity is that they're, they're, our, our salespeople are also our target user in a lot of cases. So, but yeah, I think, I think I do agree generally having customer success involved at an early stage where they really have the, the, the customer's interest at heart. I think that's super valuable for sure. Yeah. And then also, obviously, um, you know, you want to retain people on the platform and help them get more value and more success with all the services you offer. So I I think customer success can play a really key role there as well. Uh, And then how important are referrals to the business? Um, Do do they make up a big, you know, I I assume, especially when it's a platform and kind of a marketplace that a lot of times one side helps to draw the other side in. Do you have that dynamic going at all? Well, in past companies, I've I've worked a lot with referrals, and I've seen uh, I've seen uh, a lot of success. It's it's it is trickier to crack it in B two B. I see. I notice that in some industries, like Germany and France, for example, referrals tend to play an important role already just from a word of mouth side of referrals. Yeah. Yep. Then incentivized referrals and kind of automated referral programs 
they become a little bit more challenging, but they can definitely work. It's something that we definitely Yeah, I'm, I'm actually, work. yeah, that's what I was referring to is really just the, the, the word of mouth kind of side of things. Yeah, I think it's really interesting for both... Uh, both working, both expanding within companies and between companies, I think I think it's definitely an interesting thing to explore. Mm-hmm. It's a yeah, challenging right. thing to crack. Incentivizing B two B customers is 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 a challenge. Right, but but in terms of just like I think the starting point is is it happening at all, and and then how do you accelerate it maybe more with with incentives or just making it easier? But um, but I agree, like the inside companies, you know, if you if if you're partially serving a company and you can drive that kind of land and expand and, and, and look for more opportunities, but then also, uh, from company to company or from, you know, manufacturers who can, or yeah, the manufacturers who can, who can help to bring more clients onto the platform or vice versa. Um, it seems like that's a, a good, a good growth lever to potentially work, even if there's not specific incentives, financial incentives to do it, it, it still feels like it, that should be a, part of what's driving growth there yeah, if you can crack it that's uh that it's, that's golden and you you don't have to incentivize <laughs> with uh financial incentives there are so many incentives if you have uh, if you have an audience that's a little bit geeky for example there are so many cool incentives that you can play around with that aren't necessarily financial or discounts so there is there is potential there for sure and even even the events that you talked about, I mean, the, the more that you can kind of, and I mean, that's one of the things that I, I did back in the early log me in days was featuring really successful customers in in kind of webinar and that, that kind of kind of stuff. At least their success helps to attract other people, and so it's not always sort of direct word of mouth, even, but just how how do you how do you leverage the base to get bigger so that size doesn't become something that becomes a drag on growth, but instead becomes an asset that can lead to more growth. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, last thing I want to look at is the retention and engagement, which you've you've touched on as well. You've got a team that's that's focused on that. Um, What's the, you know, what gets someone coming back and using more often on the platform or like once they're set up, is it, are they done or, or, or is there a way to keep people um, understanding and, and experiencing the value more often so that they, that they continue to, to stay engaged and retain long-term? Yeah, that's really the goal of our product growth team. And uh, it, how often, what kind of retention you're looking at really depends because you have so many different com- companies using 3D hubs for so many different reasons. So you can have companies that are going to order monthly, then you'll have companies who might only order a couple of times a year. It can differ. So I think what's really important there is having really clear user segmentation, really understanding who are your who is your who are your different types of personas, your different users, how and what do you expect from them? What is a successful how do you define a successful user within that segment? So I think that's kind of one one key thing that we 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 work on decoding. Um, and then of course that's where customer success comes into play hugely because having a great customer experience, reliability, and then of course, keep in mind, you know, we're a manufacturing company. So things like, things like customs, things like delivery times, all these kind of things that you would never even think about, which I never thought about in my, in my SaaS days, uh, are suddenly things that, uh, that, that contribute. So from that end, I think having really strong product positioning is, is, is important. Having really strong product communications and just making sure that everybody's aware of the full potential of your product. And that's true of any product. Yeah. No, I think that that makes a lot of sense. So um, before we wrap up, I always like to ask the question, um, what, uh, what do you feel like you understand about growth now that you may not have understood about growth just a couple of years ago? Um, yeah, decision-making is crucial. I think the the... The fact that everybody is very data driven these days, I think, is 
is awesome. It's it's necessary. Uh, it's incredibly valuable, and it's uh, it's really changed the face of marketing. But sometimes you do see this 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 data perfectionism uh, is something that I and many people I I've known in the past have suffered from in the past. When you're when you're you're, you're trying to be as data driven as possible. Uh, the thing decision making and decision making paralysis can 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 set in very quickly. So I think making decisions, it's it's very like usually by my experience is that making a bad decision or a mediocre decision is usually still better than making no decision if you're in a fast paced fast growing environment. So decision making is crucial. Uh, perfectionism is in many cases death. And, um, and you don't have to choose between speed and quality. I think this is the one thing that I used to think you had to choose between those two things. Um, but as you go as a company, you actually have the luxury of that choice. And that's when you start focusing on things like branding, which used to be a nuisance when I was working as, you know, in the trenches and hacking away at different experiments, uh, branding guidelines and branding checks, they were a nuisance. But then when you get to a point where you're really strategically thinking about growing your business, you realize that brand is often the difference between uh, a customer choosing you or choosing another product because because we always assume that the customer understands our product like we do but very often the customer doesn't see the difference between five different products they kind of do and maybe they're shopping for very certain features but very often the brand will be a swaying factor um and maybe the last thing is just that there are so many new like marketing is such a marketing and growth and growth marketing is such an exciting field and it's constantly changing that you can't you need to be careful not to forget kind of the age old truths that, you know, human psychology hasn't changed in tens of thousands of years, how we make decisions and why we make decisions and what drives us. It hasn't really changed that much. So understanding how to tell stories, understanding how people think is still crucial and no amount of data and automation and tech is going to be able to uh, replace that. Yep. I love it. That's great. <laughs> so um, some of the key takeaways that I have from this conversation, uh, I, I love the uh, yeah, breakdown that you said between B2B and B2C. Um, I, I think it is super complex, as you said, but clearly clearly um, in, in your business, in your B2B business, uh, you guys have, have hit a growth stride and you're confident it's going to be a unicorn. And I think the um, the, the, the elements are there to support it like a, a, a very, very big industry that, uh, is, has a lot of dated ways of doing things that aren't, aren't leveraging digitization of manufacturing and some of the other things that you talked about. And so it's pretty ripe for disruption. And then you have a good product and that's, that's differentiated with the way that you bundle the services in and then a, and a team that's executing and uh, executing well with very specialized roles and you've got it break, broken down and it feels like you're, uh, you're also constantly in that uh, improve mode of trying to find better ways to, to do all of these things. So um, I'm, I'm excited to see where you guys take it and thank you for your uh, openness in sharing the story and, and helping us all get better at, at B2B growth. Oh, thanks. Thanks a lot for having me. It's been, uh, it's been really great. Well, yeah, I definitely appreciate it, Ferdinand. And to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to the Breakout Growth Podcast. Please take a moment to leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're at it, subscribe so you never miss a show. Until next week.